Not everything metal was created equal. What an ugly thing to say. The Metal Sucks Podcast. Shiggity Chuck and Godless attempt to bring order to chaos or just make stupid jokes about dumb people. Stupid. A person below normal intelligence. This is the Metal Sucks Podcast. Greetings and salutations, my fine metal friends. Welcome to another edition, the number 10 edition of uh, the Metal Sucks Podcast. We are in double digits now, Godless. (sighs) Double digits. So good. I am Chickity Chuck. I'm Godless, as are we all. And this is our uh, Sunday... Wait, wait, wait. This is our... Well, whatever day of the week it is for you. This is is our little (laughs) version of the metal world. We like to... uh, We're representing, of course, MetalSucks.net and... Having a good time doing so, and we like to chat about metal. That's what we do. We're experts in absolutely nothing, but we have opinions on everything, and that's that's all that matters, right? Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Metal good. I like metal. Metal fun. And uh, this uh, this episode, man, we've got, uh, we've got an extended, I'll just say an extended interview with uh, Misha from periphery with uh, the Vince did uh, over the past couple weeks so that's gonna be eating up most of our uh, most of our show this week but it's a really actually it's a good interview we'll talk a little bit about it in relationship to some other news that's going on around uh, in the metal world but uh, are you no, are you surviving in Mexico right now yeah but I saw no metal t-shirts this past week oh no metal t-shirts in Mexico Not a single one but you but- heard you heard some good music though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the church across the street is ripping off Paul Simon's Mrs. Robinson at the moment. So oh. if Paul Simon and his people are listening, you, you need, get down here. need to get on it. <laughs> the copyright board, the RIAA would be interested right now. Yeah, everything's good. Looking forward to getting back, but it's going to be a few more weeks. But uh, yeah, everything's good. Trying to figure out where I'm going for the last a few weeks before I come back to Texas, but I don't know. I haven't done the all-inclusive resort yet, so I might have to do that. You're going to be missing a ton of stuff this last couple of weeks that you're away, man, because uh, oh, no. uh, Summer Slaughter Tour is next week here in, uh, here in Austin, so that's going to be happening with, of course, Dillinger Escape Plan and Norma Jean and uh, Periphery, of course, is going to be on that bill. You're, you're going to miss Mayhem Fest, too. You're going to miss the Rockstar yeah. Energy Drink Mayhem Fest. What's up? I'll be back uh, in time for Iron Maiden, man. Uh, but you're going to miss the Butcher Babies interview. Yeah, I know. What's it. up with that, bro? Gotta figure something out. Uh, I'll just have you on my on my phone over here, video <laughs> videoed in. We're not even gonna record you. We're just even no audio. You can just watch it. Yeah, he's just staring. Just watch it all go down. There you Creepy go. Creepy guy on the phone staring. It's good times. Did you get? I, I gave you that album, didn't I? So that you could listen to it. What do you What do you think yeah. of that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I didn't hate it like I thought I would, but I mean, there's still just nothing particularly interesting going on there you know well um, i mean debut album wise uh it was not half as bad as i thought it was going to be i thought i thought it had the potential to be one of the worst records of the year and i would not say that right so so it's it's at least above the bottom of the barrel so but it's not bad i mean it sounds like about 2002 though and i won't be listening to it again (laughs) <laughs> you sure about that? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Oh, come on. You know you got it on loop, dude. I, I know you do. <laughs> Along with the... I always put everything on, uh, 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 what do you call it, uh, uh, Scrabble or whatever, where it's like, you know, oh, any, any 30,000 tracks. Yeah, I can yeah, play. Yeah. So, 
It might pop up every once in a while. It might pop up. I know what you got on random right now, though. You got your entire Burzum catalog rocking out right now. (laughs) What amazing news for Varg. I mean, the dude can't avoid getting headlines. You know, it's, it's truly... He's a truly fantastic character. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what else to say about it. He's a douche, but man, he he didn't even really do much of anything, and he still gets arrested. Well, that's what was sort of amazing to me this week, because uh, what we're talking about is that Varg McKiernis got arrested in France on, well, what was it? Was it terrorism charges or... I don't know. I don't know if the 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 charges were actually clearly defined. It was like a possibility of te- we we think you might be thinking about some kind of terroristic threat or something in the future someday, so we need to arrest you for it. It was sort of weird. So what's kind of strange to me is is to be kind of on Varg's side on some issue, and that that, <laughs> that feels uncomfortable. Hell yeah. <laughs> It's like uh, I don't know, man, but I think they 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 arrested you for a bad reason. Yeah, his wife like bought some guns, right? Which I didn't think you could do in France, but I guess you can. Well, I think what it is, and uh, what's his wife's name? Marie Cachet, I think is her is her name. She's a yeah. member of a shooting club, and if you're a member of a shooting club, you can actually buy weapons, from what I understand. Uh-huh. So you're allowed to buy guns if you're a member of a shooting club, and she bought four weapons at once. So she bought four guns all at the same time, and that raised the red flags that made them grab both of them and haul them in. But they can, according to Francis Law, like hold you up to, I think, 96 hours, and they let them go after a couple of days so, yeah. and with no charges filed. So they, apparently it's not over. They could call him back to testify or whatever, but, but right now, it, yeah, yeah, I was like, man, that just kind of sucks. You just ru- Somebody really quickly needs to get this guy a reality t show a t- tv show right i know i mean right now i mean this is so much magic happening in that house in france it'd be the european version of duck dynasty though is what it'd wind up being you know i don't know it'd be sort of like the honey boo boo of racist metal yeah you know? well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the catchphrase would be totally different though you know i don't think it'd be y'all know what you know it wouldn't be the yeah. same it wouldn't be the same kind of catchphrase uh, what, what, what kind of catchphrase could we come up with for Varg? Yeah. yeah, there'd be something like uh, well, it'd be uh, something terribly racist that I that I don't even want to get into right now. I'm like, no, no, no. Step away, chump, or I'll stab you in the neck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, bad, bad, bad. Dude, uh, the t- the Learning Channel needs to be all over this. I mean. Bravo. Put it on Bravo, man. Bravo something. It, it's it's the Ozzy Osbourne show, but like you, you got to get on this guy before he gets old and, and tired. You know, he's still you know young and stupid. Well, hell, and, he could he could get arrested again. Well, no, in France, I guess he could get arrested and be put away for a long time. I was thinking about back home. You know, they be murder somebody, burns down some churches, and they put him in jail for twenty one years. Yeah, voila, Whoa. entertainment. Whoa, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, we got and we got him back after twenty years, and he could do it again. He could you could commit crime, like heinous crimes against humanity three or four times and still get out of jail and be fine up there. Well, as long as there's a camera nearby. Yeah, right. <laughs> all right, we got it all on tape. This is going to make for great video, man. But that's how you change. That's how you wind up getting uh, your laws changed and you wind up putting people in jail forever. Yeah, the, the like accusations when the first news came out was like it was just weak from the get-go you know it was uh he's on the mailing list of the guy who massacred all those people in norway a couple of years ago and it's like yeah I, I imagine varg's on some pretty funky mailing lists you know he's 
got some loony fans, you know? But, yeah, right. I mean, because it seemed what he was in contact with the dude. That's like sending somebody, Charles Manson or something, you know, sending him a letter in jail. Or right. we're talking about a celebrity here. So if he's got celebrity status, you can't control who tries to contact him. Right, and he supposedly, like, on his blog or something, which I got to admit, I never read, and maybe I need to do that, but, uh, uh, yeah, like, he, uh, uh, you know, had totally ripped the guy a new one, talking about why what he did was awful and wrong, etc., and then seemed to kind of sort of suggest that something big was coming down the way, and I guess they combined that statement with the guns and said he's going to do something, but that wasn't in what was written at all. No, no, wait, are we, are we... Are we defending Varg Vakirnis on something? It, it is. It's, really? It's terrible. Uh, I know. It's, it's gone that far. That's how far <laughs> down the rabbit hole we've gone now. It's kind of kind of freaky, man. And then what else we were talking about? We were talking before we started recording this morning about uh, Altar of Plagues, and you were, you were like going... going I'm pissed. I'm so pissed. You're mad, dude. Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting is like the news about Altar of Plagues, I only caught like this past week. And yeah. right afterwards, I listened to the interview uh, uh, that Vince did with Peri- the Misha from Periphery. And I thought, and then you combine it with the news that Volcom is not signing bands anymore that you got from the interview with uh, yeah. uh, Valiant himself uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, you got the scoop, man. You got the scoop. I know, right? And, uh, uh, you know, you combine all this stuff, and it's like, man, Ultra Plagues have got no perspective whatsoever. And what they did was they came out and they said, uh, yeah, we just put out an awesome album, in my opinion, the second best album of the year so far, and we're, we quit. And we're letting you know so that a few of you will come to our last few shows before, uh, uh, you know, we're done for good. And, and I was like, and first of all, it reminded me of Ozzy's No More Tours. What was that in like 94 or something like yeah. that? It was like, how yeah, many tours that. has he done since? You know, come on. I mean, I get it that, you know, you got a nice little pun on your hit single, but still suckered everybody into coming to those shows. And with Alter Place, it's like you got six more people to show up to your shows in Dublin. And meanwhile, pissed off everybody else that's in your audience that can't make those shows. Well, and it just seems I'm, it's hard to understand why uh, two months into the record cycle, like you just came out with the record that you couldn't bring yourself to do I, that it's time to be done. You know, that seems like very, very weird timing. And it may have been in the brew for a, for a while with those guys, or they may have other things going on. I have no idea. Like, like, like I said, they were not as big on my radar as they were for you. Uh, because I mean, I like that album. I think it's a good record, but it, I just, it wasn't, wasn't what I was, what I'm listening to right now. So, uh, it's very weird though when you juxtapose the two things together like you were saying with the with what periphery was talking about with labels and how you do things and what's going to make successful bands move forward with labels or without labels because there's so many different directions that you can go this just seems counterintuitive to it all well, Misha talks about this. And I'm not going to say what he says because you know everybody's well, I mean, listen to the interview. And just yeah, I mean, we could talk a little but, bit about it, but but he's incredibly sensitive to the record label's perspective on his band, like especially when they were first getting going. He was like, you know, these ba- these labels were interested in supporting the band and and you know getting some licenses licensing deals, and we weren't even sure if we could tour yet. And you know, you see the turnover on uh, with band members in the first couple of years. It took a while to find a a a, a, a you know a, secure a lineup. lineup, yeah, yeah that that could handle life on the road. And 
you know, it was interesting because Misha talks about it not from the perspective of, geez, I, I hope the band was being successful. He was also sensitive to these guys, these labels are investing in my success and I don't want to let them down. And, and you juxtapose that with Alter of Plagues who are like, uh, yeah, screw everybody. You know, was it Candlelight? I think it's the, uh, or yeah, one it's of the two labels. Candlelight or uh, Profound Lore. One yeah, of the, and, yeah. I mean, if I'm at those labels, I'm pissed off. I'm like, what the hell, dudes? We just, you know, we paid for your album or we paid for the music video or we paid for all this other stuff and now you just drop off. I mean, we're still hoping to sell 120 copies every week for the next, you know, two or three months for the pittance that we're going to get out of this. And you guys totally screwed us over. And it it, it sucks and it makes it, it, it sucks for other, other bands because, you know, other, you know, the labels like Volcom end up saying, you know what, dealing with bands is kind of sucky, so we're just going to do special projects. And, man, I don't blame them. If they had signed Alter of Plagues and Alter of Plagues had just done what they've done to Profound Lore and stuff, I'd be pretty pissed off, too. Well, you start to do pet projects or you start to do people that you know or bands that are that you know are going to be successful, which... Which, in the end, is what labels used to do more of in the first place. They're they're gonna be more more picky and choosy about who they're picking up and who they're putting out because they they need to think about this stuff. They need to look at that band dynamic before they go and invest their money and time and effort into something like that. Is it is it a re- responsibility of somebody from your A and R department that's picking up a band and signing a band that also has to look at? is this band at the end or are they at a point in their career where they're going to explode on themselves? Is this, is that something that, that labels need to take into account when they're thinking about their roster? And, and you know, what's funny is like the, the statement from Alteraplex. First of all, there's no apology to the label, no apology to anybody. Basically the guy's like, uh, yeah, I was thinking about sort of shutting everything down for a while now before we even started recording. And, and I'm like, well, dude, why don't you let your label know that you're planning on shutting everything down? And who knows? They might have, you, you know, they, they may have, but it's, no. you know, if you, they had, they, 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 the label would have withdrawn the money. Dude, if they, but that, that record, you know, when you're talking about a record cycle, it doesn't start a month before the record gets put out. It's, it's, it's a, that's probably been in the works for a year or maybe, you know, eight, nine, ten months or so. You know, you're writing the record, you're putting it together, you're getting the label deal, you're getting all the, the legal documents signed, you're getting all that stuff, you know, put together. So, I mean, this is something that's been working for a while to get a record put out. So, uh, you know, follow through. Yeah, well, know? yeah, I, I mean, no, I trust me, I get it. I, I, th- I think they, they should. But musicians need to listen to this interview with Misha because the dude's got the most clear head when it comes to labels. It's like he's not a pushover. He's not like ah, we signed a Roadrunner and got a you know same awful deal that uh, uh, you know Asphyx got back. Or no, Asphyx was on Century Media, but you know that like uh, Atheist got back in 1991. Yeah. You know that yeah. sort of thing. He was like, hey, look, it's, times are different. And we needed to sign a different kind of deal, and and they did, you know. And they've worked with a bunch of different labels, and it seems like he's had a really smart perspective on it. Where he's like, "Hey, look, I'm not going to let you screw me over. I'm going to own my masters, uh, and then beyond that, you know, I'm going to work for you, and yeah. I'm going to be sensitive for it. Well, We're all going to make money together, you know." Well, let's get into that, and uh, let's uh, let uh, let Vince and Misha actually hash that out for the next uh, for the for the rest of the show, pretty much. We're going to come back at the end. And uh, talk a little bit about the new carcass before we get to, before we get through and and be done. But uh, right now, let's uh, do the interview with Misha from Periphery and Vince Neilstein of MetalSucks.net. <laughs>
what's up, dude? Can you see me? Oh, I can see you. This is an audio podcast, though. I don't need to see you. So, I mean, it, you know, you, you didn't have to put on pants for this interview. That's really funny. It's funny that you say that because I literally ran out of the room to put on pants. Oh, I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, why would you put on pants? Because I thought this was a video thing. No, oh, no, no, no. We, uh, you know, I don't know if you've been on the site in a while, but we just launched a, a new podcast a few weeks ago, and we're starting to do interviews for it and uh, get that going, just try and get a little bit more visibility on it. So I did my makeup for nothing. Cool. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I saw you guys are doing that. That's really cool, man. Thanks. I'm, um, glad, I'm glad to be a part of it. Definitely, man. Well, I mean, you were one of the first people that, that we thought of to do it, um, you know, seeing as you have done a lot of stuff for our site before, from the guest columns to um, to commenting, which I'm sure a lot of people appreciate, and it's definitely something I want to talk about with you later, to, um, you know, just being a dude in metal that I think people want to to know about you know to to get in to get to know a little better um you know i mean for better or worse i think you've definitely evolved into one of those guys that uh that you know people want to know about sweet hopefully right <laughs> definitely hopefully um, they find the dead bodies in my closet you know who's in there uh you know what she didn't have family she, she won't be missed <laughs> um, so something I want to talk about with you is uh, you know, we've talked about this before a little bit just uh, conversationally but I think you've talked about it online too is that you didn't really get into metal until a little bit later in life um, and it's something that you kind of came at as uh, with a fresh perspective so um, can you talk a little bit about how you did get into metal and when you got into metal and how you got into metal all right. Well, I mean, I, I, um, I guess you know I'm I'm the oldest brother. So anyone who's like uh, uh, the oldest or like a, a single child does, you probably know that you don't have anyone to kind of show you, uh, you know, the, the stuff. You kind of have to discover for yourself. And I guess I didn't really have any uh, any any people uh, in my life who were like showing me music. So all I really knew was kind of what you know my parents had around the house, which was like classical stuff. And my mom made me take piano lessons, which I hated more than anything. Um, so I was really exposed to classical until I was about like 13 or so. And then we had a friend visiting from Australia, and he brought like Nirvana CDs and like Offspring and um, all sorts of stuff like that. Like it wasn't really metal. But it was my first taste into something like heavier and right from there it was like wow I like that sound and it's kind of funny because I actually remember you know asking him I was like this is really cool but do you have anything louder and you know obviously I didn't have the vocabulary to like express what it was I was looking for but what I was really trying to say is do you have anything heavier because it was kind of like this is definitely a step in the right direction and I kind of like this I wonder how far this can go but all I said was louder and he didn't really understand he was like oh this is ACDC they're the loudest band in the world I was like no 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 that that's not what I'm talking about but like that kind of got me started to where I was talking to my friends about that and you know when I was like 13 for maybe like 12 or 13 actually that's when I first started to like search for heavier music and and I think it started with bands like Korn and uh uh, I remember. I remember my friend showed me like uh, some songs off of uh, Roots by Sepultura. I didn't really know what all that stuff was, and Marilyn Manson. So like, kind of that was my first 
taste, you know, like new metal and stuff like that. And and then from there, you know, it's just kind of like a snowball effect. You you find more and more, and 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 uh, you kind of grow up and and get into different things. And for me, it was like more progressive stuff, like like Tool and uh, you know, Meshuggah. Obviously, I love Meshuggah to death. Uh, Dream Theater and stuff like that, um, and, and Deftones was huge, huge for me. So, I mean, that's basically how it all started, was kind of snowballing from listening to bands like Nirvana and Offspring and Green Day and looking for something a little bit heavier. At what moment did you decide, I want to start a band and I want it to be a heavy band? I, you know, I, I said I'd, I'd been taking piano lessons, I hated it, and like, I always, as long as I can remember, wanted to like learn to play drums and or electric guitar. Those were like fascinating instruments and my parents were like, no, no, no. You'll go deaf if you have a drum set and like they had no interest in me learning the guitar. So I wanted to do that even more, you know? And uh, like, uh, I'm actually Jewish. I don't know if you know this or if or people know this, but uh, with my bar mitzvah money, that's why I bought my first drum set and guitar. Dude, that's and perfect. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I did know that, but I, I'm not sure if it's popular or uh, general yeah. knowledge. Yeah, I was raised, I was raised like very strict Jewish, you know, and, and uh, fortunately for me, you know, once you're, once you're a bar mitzvah, it's like you're a man and you can kind of make your own decisions. So I was like, peace, you know, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I bought, I bought my first guitar, my first drum set with that money, which was, which was really cool. And um, I never really like, decided that I wanted to have a band or anything. It was just kind of like, well, that's what you do when you have a, when you have drums and guitar, you find people to jam with, you know, and so I had like my crappy, I, I wouldn't even call them bands, it was just my friends in high school would come over, we'd cover whatever, whatever songs we, you know, were skilled enough to cover, which wasn't really a lot of stuff. But it was just kind of making noise in, in my parents' basement, you know? And um, I guess uh, once I went to school uh, in Toronto, I, I had to stop playing drums because, uh, you know, in school there's not really a, a place to do that. And I wasn't going to school for music because I didn't know theory or anything like that, you know. I didn't really know much on any instrument at that point anyways. Uh, and I was like, I'm going to focus on guitar and start recording my stuff. And that's kind of when I was like, okay, maybe it would be cool to start a band. And that was more of a rock thing too, you know. That's where Bulb started and that was more of a rock thing. But... I guess like I saw metal shows and I was like, man, the energy at metal shows is amazing. It's like you can't really, you don't really see anything quite like that, you know, like moshing and people going absolutely apeshit because like at rock shows, people will be into it and, and, and other styles of music, you can tell that people are getting into it, but I was like, metal, people go nuts and I, I just love the idea of that and I love the idea of the band going nuts and, and, and the crowd feeding off each other. And, you know, it's kind of unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen. And that's kind of when I decided, like, yeah, I want to I wanna be in a metal band for sure, you know? Um, so fast forward a few years, I guess. And, I mean, I, I first remember getting wind of what you were doing. Um, had to have been around, uh, I guess, maybe 2008, I think, maybe. Or maybe it was 2007. But I remember finding somehow the Bulb demos on SoundClick, of which you right. had hundreds and um, and thinking it was really cool, um, and, and actually downloading a few of them and listening to them on my iPod. Um, so, how did you go from there to actually putting Periphery together? And how did you find the dudes that 
ultimately ended up being in the band? You know, it was a it was a very long and arduous process. If anyone like followed, they probably they probably knew it. Uh, it was very difficult for a few reasons. One, um, it was kind of a new way to experience music. You know, this is in that sort of transitional period where it's like, hey, you know, you can find music online, and hey, people are putting it online for free. And that's what I was kind of doing, was just putting these demos and, and ideas and whatever that I just done in my room. Uh, and, like, people would be interested in playing. But, you know, there was always the distance problem. And it was still a relatively small pool of people. And, and the other problem was a lot of this stuff people appreciated, but they didn't necessarily get what I was doing. You know, this was before anyone, anyone was really doing this style of music. So uh, I remember it being very difficult to find a drummer because they didn't really kind of get what I was going for uh, and they would kind of miss the point uh, and I actually had to play the first uh, few periphery shows on drums because um, <clears throat> we couldn't we couldn't find a drummer and the idea was well I could sit at home and wait or we could just go out and play some shows and maybe something will come of it but I remember that being like one of the biggest problems was just finding people who were kind of on the same wavelength and in the same mindset and who lived in my area, you know? Well, you, you certainly had a lot of people over the years. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you had, uh, was it Casey, the name of the first singer? Our, our first singer was uh, was uh, Jacob Tull, who was a local guy, and he didn't last very long. And then, you know, Casey, I, I, I met him over MySpace. He liked the tracks, and we kind of connected like that, but that didn't work out because he didn't really like touring. And then uh, uh, we had Chris Chris Barreto, who, this is actually kind of funny because we just did an instrumental tour being like, well, maybe we'll find a singer. And he was he was at one of the shows at, in the opening band, and, and, and we liked him, so uh, uh, we decided to try him out, but that didn't work out either. And then finally, um, Casey was actually the one to recommend Spencer to us, and, and he's the one who worked out, he, you know. But, like, this is all before the the first album even came out so this is all ancient history to us you know yeah um, uh, well I mean so, I remember seeing you guys with Chris Barreto yeah um, and I mean it, but it felt like at that time it felt like you guys already had a lot of momentum um, I can't remember exactly whether you had already signed your record deal or not we were unsigned back then right wow so you know so you were unsigned um, but certainly had some interest so I mean you know, what was it like going from being a, an unsigned, well, basically just you recording songs in your bedroom to, yeah. to being a, a signed band and going through that process? Um, like, kind of like you said before. Yeah, well, I mean, basically it was, it was a tricky thing because, again, this, is, this, is a, this was a very different point in time uh, to labels. They hadn't really seen what were, what were the potential consequences of you know, getting into a band that had online hype, but really no tour experience whatsoever. And I mean, with good reason, they were apprehensive because it's like, who's to say that it wasn't all studio magic or that we might just hate each other once we go on the road, which is very realistic and just, you know, completely implode in the first week of tour. Um, so it was, it was a real gamble. And we had a lot of labels courting us for a while. Um, and we were very picky with our offers, so we turned down all of them, uh, and some from a few labels several times um, over years. This happened over years. It was just like, until we get the, the deal that makes sense, 
you know, and when I say make sense, I mean like I was doing everything myself. The old old school deals work because they cost a lot of money, cost a lot to record, it costs a lot to promo. You're not going to get a bank to give you a $250,000 loan when you have no income. So a label can do that and as collateral they'll take your album and, you know, the rights to it. But I was like, man, I'm going to deliver an album done with artwork. Everything is taken care of. Your job is to put it on shelves. There's no way that you're going to own the masters to that. It's just, it's just not fair. Um, and eventually, Sumerian was able to give us a deal that made sense. And it was kind of, when that happened, it was like the other labels were like, damn, we fucked up, you know? <laughs> and uh, we ended up like signing to Roadrunner, who was kind of on the fence the whole time. And then they kind of admitted that, like, shit, we should have grabbed you when we had the chance. But they got us in every other territory, which was another part of our deal. So it was all a real complex thing. Um, and for us, it was kind of scary at first because we also didn't know how we were going to fare on the road. So it was a real gamble. I think we did, that, uh, we did that Thrash and Burn tour. That was our first, I think in 2009, that was our first time on the road. And, and it was a hard tour. It was a really, really tough. And as a summer tour in a van... Anyone who's done a summer tour in a van knows how hard that, that shit is. So, but it was a test. It's like if you can survive this, you can survive just about anything else that the road throws at you. We got, I guess, lucky in that sense because it, it worked out, you know? Well, you actually just touched on something that I hadn't really anticipated in talking about, but um, I think is a really interesting topic that you'll probably have an opinion on, which is that do, does it strike you as weird that in the year 2013 there are still territorial deals for for bands uh you know seeing as the internet is so worldwide and is specifically for you is such a big part of uh who periphery is it's it's an interesting thing and it's it's kind of a relic of the past because it, it's it's about distro and physical media and um it's kind of playing to this this idea that a label has has redefined the role a little bit. Like labels do a lot of the the managing and the promo and a lot of things. They take those into their own hands and they learn their markets. So like the promo and the approach to uh, an album release in in our different ter territories because we're signed to five labels currently. You know, it's all different and the and the way they they structure everything, the way they they promote. Also, it, it's kind of like having someone who knows their territory. Who knows? Who has ins with their 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 contacts at, at radio and, and magazine publications and all that? You know, sort of a label that's just from the states and doesn't have that reach wouldn't be able to do as good a job. So that's sort of the plus side to it. But the opposite thing, which I see you're saying, is like, okay, so digital media is taking over, and how do you control that? And it's it's like iTunes does does separate what you can get in different countries and does seem to separate that but is that necessary you know and I guess it's just a matter of organization I think we're again it's such a it's such a transitional period right now and everyone's just trying to figure out what works and what makes sense and we're figuring it out as as it goes along and I think in about five to ten years there'll be a very clear answer that'll sort of pop up because uh, uh, someone will figure something out that makes sense for, for everything, you know, kind of in line with the, the fact that these markets will self-regulate, but it's just a matter of time. So right now we're all kind of figuring it out, and there's a lot of 
weird things like that, you know, where it's like, yeah, you have different territories for for, um, for digital media, but is that really necessary? Because you could just download it from anywhere, technically, you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's weird, you know, I, I, I see both sides of it also, you know, I see um, absolutely why... Uh, say you know just from the press perspective because that's what I do why a publicist here would have better relationships with sites that are based here uh, you know and readers that are based here and you know if I were to try a promote a band in the UK or you know I don't know Hungary or anywhere I wouldn't have a clue who to reach out to about that um, whereas somebody who lives in either of those places probably could um, well, let, but, me, let so, me give you a really really specific example um, so after Roadrunner, after Roadrunner kind of collapsed, you know, uh, and became like officially Warner Music Group, we 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 had the option to leave, and we did because basically everyone who we worked with in all those territories, except for Australia, got fired, you know, and we were like kind of just a statistic on this public company, this public public company's label, you know, and it wasn't a passion project like we used to be. And when we were looking at what labels to go to, the reason we went with Century Media in Europe is because they're a German label, and that has been one of our weaker territories in Europe. So the the idea was, well, we go with a, a German label, and they're really going to push that, and they have been. You know, we've seen a big a, a big difference in the last year in, in in our reaction and our promo in Germany, specifically because of that. So that's sort of one of the positives to this. And it's not just about the album sales, but it's about the promotion side of things. And you can really sort of localize your efforts uh, and and put the the work where it needs to be. Definitely, um, you know. And that, but then on the other side, it's you know with the different release dates and stuff. It's like if Periphery releases a song, and or you know sometimes like publicists or labels will come to us and ask us if we can do a premiere just for the U.S. and have some other site do it in some other territory and it's like no you know like people the the world can access the internet you know like it's it's ludicrous that I couldn't agree with you more I still don't understand this and this has happened for every release we've had and it's happened for a lot of releases when they have licensing deals because we have this thing where we have to release albums on Tuesdays I don't know why I still have not gotten a clear answer why that is I think it's just it is and and therefore it is what it is but like in other countries, like in Australia, that's not the case, and they always try to get jump on it by releasing it a week earlier. That's cool. They don't they don't actually cannibalize the U.S. market because they're so far away, and like it's not like for physical sales that'll cause a problem. However, when you have an album stream up in Australia, it's up in the rest of the world. <laughs> so it's like that's one thing where I feel like our labels really need to coordinate and plan that a little bit better because it probably could go a little bit smoother, but. Yeah, and it's like what? Like, am I not supposed to post that album stream because my right. website is based exactly. in the U.S.? Like, that's that's yeah. ludicrous. Are you supposed to pretend it's not out? Like, because then there's still restrictions in other territories. Like, oh well, we're not supposed to have. You know, this is the only track. This is the only teaser that's supposed to be up. And I'm like, well, our entire album streams up on this Australian site. You think that like people in America aren't listening to that right now? I'm like put the YouTube stream up now so that we can make that the official one. But it's like, oh, well, we have dates and a schedule. It's That's where you get into the red tape, you know, and all the, all that boring stuff. And and it's kind of like, it's it's entirely form over function at that point. But I think that, I mean, people realize this. It's just streamlining the process. And these are the kinds of things that I think will eventually get worked out. Um, 
especially as the role of the label slowly gets redefined. Because I still think that a label has a role, but I just don't think it's going to be what it historically was. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you that we're in a transitional period, and, and there are reasons that these practices endure, um, and that, that it will change. But, I mean, you know, you said something at, at the end of that statement there. I mean, what do you think is the role of the label specifically moving forward, say, 10 years from now? I think that it's going to take on a much more managerial role than it will be. It used to be historically a bank, like really just it would be the musician's bank that would give you the loan that no one else would. Well, and the marketing, you know, marketing expertise. Yeah, but but keep in mind that was because it would cost 500,000 bucks to promo an album, you know? And uh, and now you can do like with sites like yours, you know, it's it's nothing compared to that to to, to really market an album. And print is dying. It's more of a prestige thing to have a full page ad in, in a magazine, but really you get more visibility by, by buying banners and ads on sites. So in that world, you don't need the same kind of money. And if you don't need the same kind of money, then you don't need a bank. And if you don't need a bank, then why do you need a label? Now, I'm not saying that they're useless, but I'm saying they need to redefine the role because they've always had the promo side of things, but now it's more managing the promo side of things and having a good publicist and a good team. And I also think that things are going to kind of even out to where um, there will the, the majority of musicians will be in a middle class, or at least I should say the successful musicians. I think that crowdfunding uh, will sort that out, and I have my own theories on that. But um, long story short, I think that there's going to be, there's not really going to be as many rock stars and extremely successful bands as far, like financially successful bands. But I think that there will be a very capable market for, uh, for, for a middle class of musicians who can get by and there will be this sort of organization between label management and artists that will allow that to survive. I, I totally agree with you. Um, I, I see the same, uh, the same exact thing happening. But, you know, it's interesting. Obviously, people will try and hold on to their jobs for as long as possible, uh, whether those jobs are becoming obsolete or not. You know, when does it happen and how does it happen? Well, it happens gradually and the smart ones adapt. You know, the ones who've fallen, the big labels that have fallen have fallen because they've been very stubborn. Now, yes, it's unfair. It's unfair to be like, well, you've built your empire off of this business model, and yeah, it sucks that like one day there's this thing that comes along and says like that doesn't work. And there's a lot of people who've been like, well, we'll bounce back. You know, we just need to find a way to to get kids to buy CDs. My my point of view on that is that you know you can't tell a kid who's born after 2000 that he's got to buy a CD. His whole life, all he's ever known is downloading, and all, all you know he doesn't even know what physical media is. You and I come from a generation before, so we've seen cassettes, we've seen CDs. We know that sort of guilt that's associated with stealing, you know? But a lot of these younger kids have just, all they know is just like, oh yeah, you want to get music? Yeah, you just get on the internet, and like, if you don't have money, you can just get like that. It's not a guilt thing, it's just that's the way it is. So then to tell them all of a sudden, like, that's wrong, that, that's not going to make sense to it. What you, what, what you have to do is find new ways to incentivize them supporting because I do believe that they want to support. They just don't understand uh, that that buying a CD is supporting the artist because they that's just never been part of the equation in their brain, you know? And uh, again, I think that's where crowdfunding, if done carefully, uh, comes into play. So what are your views on crowdfunding? You mentioned that you, you wanted to talk about that a little. I think that it's something that 
that is a, a make or break thing. It's going to separate the men from the boys because look at look at a band like Protest, right? I don't think anyone thought that they were going to hit the number that they did. But they did because they have loyal fans. They have loyal fans, probably more and more loyal fans than a lot of people gave them credit for. And when given the opportunity to support the band in a way that makes sense, which is directly investing in the album and not a guilt trip of like, oh, well, you know, you're killing artists if you don't buy CDs, which doesn't make sense to a lot of people, to a lot of the younger people especially. When given the opportunity to support, you see how they come in droves. But this will separate, as I said, the men from the boys because the hype bands and the ones that, that don't have true substantial fans will not be able to get that support from, from their fans and they won't be able to meet their numbers and they won't be able to hang. So in, in a sense, crowdfunding will be a sorting tool. And I think even the, the, you know, the, the rewards and incentive systems that, that, that uh, crowdfunding has created are going to be tweaked a bit because I think it's going to be less about... I think uh, Misery Signals kind of did a good job with that where it was like not about the gimmicks and more so about like, you know, help us fund this album, help us allow this album to happen. And that's a very pure and real goal. It's like, hey, you are part of this. You're literally putting money into a product that you're going to receive. So that's, that's really cool. And the labels definitely take notice of that. And I think that in the future, labels will and will be smart to look at that as much as anything else. Because not only does that show you sort of the cred of the band, but it shows you the buying power of their fans and how loyal the fans are, which is something that Facebook likes and 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 all sorts of you know aggregates of information like uh, like like torrent downloads and uh, YouTube plays can't tell you. You'll never get that information. The thing with crowdfunding, you know, it seems like where public opinion has landed on on the matter is more or less what you just expressed, you know, and that it's okay and that it works. Um, and that as long as you make the perks good, uh, it can really be a viable option. But I think the problem is, uh, how do you start? You know, like Protest the Hero and Misery Signals had the benefit of being on fairly, or not fairly, like very well-known record labels for the first several records of, of their careers and benefiting from all the money and time that was put into them. So, you know, how do you throw a band just into the wild and, and, and just say, well, tough shit, guys, you know, go crowdfund you yourself. You this brings us to the beautiful role of the labels. When I say their, their roles are going to be redefined, they're going to be that stepping stone. And then I think there are several levels of labels, or maybe even the same label, but we'll, we'll take a band at several levels or stages of their career. You know, I would say that a label will allow a band to build and then the the crowdfunding part would be the cashing out, if you will. You know, there's no, there's not really going to be much growth on that. That's sort of cashing out at your value, and in a sense, assessing your value. Well, but so a lot of what you have now is, uh, I think labels are aware of that, and they're actually trying to sign bands to like six or seven album deals to prevent that from happening. Because labels, labels are afraid. Labels are very, very afraid of crowdfunding. But I think that that's a very short-sighted point of view because I think that what they should be trying to do is create some uh, sort of symbiotic relationship. And, I mean, I don't want to give away any things that labels should do, but, like, if they were smart, they would get involved with that, though they really shouldn't because the artist needs as much money as possible. But if I was a label, that's what I would do. Because 
because in a sense that's your test that's to assess how how good a job you really are doing you know hey how many people are putting the money where their mouth is you know I think that for bands it's an extremely important thing for them to be able to survive because the lion's share has always gone to the label but with that it goes to the artist but then you can't grow so you'll stagnate if you just do that so you see my point you need a little bit of both and if labels were smart they would realize that and not be afraid because they'd realize that if bands just did crowdfunding unless they were absolutely massive they they would totally plateau after, like very shortly there's a lot to benefit from from uh, from working with a label if they do a good job well definitely and we're starting to see some new methods of crowdfunding uh for example earache records which has been consistently one of the first labels to embrace new technologies, recently did a Kickstarter for, um, ah, shit, I forget, forget the band now. I think it was um, Nocturnus, and they wanted to reissue a, uh, an old vinyl that just has been out of print for a while, and they basically said, well, if it gets to the goal, then we'll release it. And if it doesn't get to the goal, then we won't release it. You know, so it was like it wasn't like a uh, begging thing, like oh, we need money for our tour bus, you know, or our van broke or whatever. It was like it was kind of gauging the market for this particular product. And yeah. I thought that was a really clever way of utilizing it. That's very clever, and it's almost too clever because eventually labels are going to start working crowdfunding into their deals so that they can start taking that share which the artists can or have been taking to themselves entirely or they might even have clauses about you know banning crowd uh, or you know crowdfunding as as part of the contract or or, or something like that you uh, know like you, you said, you've said too much now <laughs> you know, i'm like worried i'm like worried but I feel like these are logical, you know, if you're in business, these are the logical next steps. If your goal is to make money, you know, you can't fault that. The whole idea is you're trying to kind of find a mutually beneficial relationship with you and the, and the label. But I think the labels, the labels will have to start accepting that they're going to make less money because a lot of the power is in the, in the artist's hands now, and they're seeing that. That's why they're scared, but the smart ones are going to find a way to make it work. And they're going to realize that bands need growth and that that's what they need to focus on. That bands are going to want to take part of crowdfunding because it allows them to continue to, to do music. It allows them to make money off of something where they really don't make money otherwise. And they can continue to afford to make albums. But that the labels can help them grow uh, so that they're not just cashing out in a plateau. Right. And, and, you know, it could actually even be beneficial to the label. Um, for instance, on the tour support side, like you've got just in the past couple of months here, several bands, uh, two I can think of off the top of my head, Allegiant and Huntress doing crowdfunding campaigns for basically tour support, you know, money for a bus, money for a van. And you had to believe that some conversation took place between the band or their manager and the label in which they said, hey, can we have some money for this? And the label said no. Um, you know, or or that conversation didn't happen because they knew the answer would be no. Where right. in the, where in the past, uh, it was more common for labels to offer tour support to bands. Um, you know, so it might actually be counterintuitive for a label to write a clause into a contract banning crowdfunding because it actually does alleviate some of the financial pressure that labels have traditionally had to deal with. Yeah, the the one thing to consider about that is that. If you're crowdfunding, you're getting money. If you're getting tour support, you're borrowing money. 
That's all right back to the label. So as long as the band believes that, or as long as the label believes that that band's not to be written off, then uh, they're going to get that money right back. It's not really a loss. It's just a, an investment so that your band doesn't fall apart and you can get that money back on CD sales. And I mean, that that only complicates things further. I think that the the key to all of this is to not be short-sighted, which unfortunately have been the cause of a lot of, a lot of these problems, which is very counterintuitive to, 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 to think about the long-term solutions for these things because oftentimes it means doing things that look like they're not beneficial or accepting things that look like they're not beneficial to you in the short term but realizing that you know if you did those things like for example you know contractually banning crowdfunding on a record deal uh, that you'd be shooting yourself in the foot uh, I mean I'm sure you have specific examples in mind of what you're talking about of bands or labels who have done this kind of thing and I know you're not going to mention them because you're uh, you're a mensch when it comes to uh, <laughs> you know keeping your uh, your mouth shut when you're supposed to but um, I, that's something I actually wanted to, to talk to you about and you've written about a little bit in the past in guest blogs for Metal Sucks is uh, you know knowing what to say and, and what not to say I mean it's a business and and that's the that's first and foremost that's that's the thing that you have to remember. I mean, like unless you've decided like this is like just something you're gonna do with your best friends and like who cares, right? But the truth is, if you're if you're trying to monetize this and if you're trying to, God forbid, make a career out of this, as hard as it is nowadays, you have to you have to treat it like the small business that it is because that is exactly what it is. Um, and and with that comes re those responsibilities. You know, you can't be talking business with people who don't really need to know your business. That's stupid. Absolutely. Uh, were, were there any specific examples of you learning that the hard way? You know, not really. I think I've always had a pretty good sense of that just because I've, you know, it's, it's kind of the way I was raised, you know? Maybe it's a Jewish thing, you know? But it's like, it's like your money's your own business. And I, I feel like a lot of times it's, it's, it's to brag or to, you know, name drop or whatever. And it's like, you don't really benefit from that, but kind of not give, not showing your cards all the time does benefit you a lot, <laughs> you know? Um, yet, uh, you um, are not shy about commenting on Metal Sucks, which uh, I know we appreciate uh, and the readers appreciate, and we appreciate because the readers appreciate. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I love that. I always lurk on the site. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. I mean, but, you, you know, I... I, we don't really see that a lot. We don't see musicians actually getting involved. I think most guys prefer to... I mean, there's people who probably don't even read reviews of their record. Uh, you know, I mean, I know there's those people. Um, right. But, you know, like getting involved in the comments from a band perspective is is really rare. And, and whenever it does happen, um, and I can think of a couple of examples, it usually ends badly. Uh, yet it's worked out well for you. Well, the thing is that I started out on forums just kind of, you know, it's like if I wasn't in a band, I probably would be commenting on the site anyway. So it's just I'm the same, I'm in the same situation. I just happen to be in a band. But this isn't like a chore. I know that to a lot of people it is. Uh, and a lot of people kind of do it because it's like, oh, it's good to interact with your, your fans or whatever. But the big advantage I have is that I just enjoy it. It's not a chore to me at all. It's something I like doing because I probably would be doing it anyway in some capacity. So it's just the same to me. <laughs> Definitely. Um, uh, do, do you ever get tired of metal? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I remember looking at your year-end list last year that you submitted for us, and it was almost entirely not metal. Well, the thing I've realized is I don't actually listen to a lot of music, um, as lame as that sounds. I, I really don't. I'm around it so much, and I just kind of I, I don't listen to music. So when I listen to music, it's like kind of a big deal. When I get into a band, uh, I, I get into that one band, and that's all I listen to. And it doesn't really matter what style of music it is. And I'm, I, I don't know if you can relate to this, maybe not, but you know, I'll, I'll say I like a band and people will suggest like, oh, well, if you like that band, you'll, you'll like these five other bands. And it's such a difficult thing for me to get into bands in the first place. And you know, 99% of the time, I just won't like any of those other suggestions because I just happen to like what that one specific band is doing just right. Um, so I, I, I'm picky, and I know it, and, and I kind of wish I wasn't. I kind of wish I, I liked more more music and listened to more music, but I I really don't. Um, and you know that that's out of all styles. So some of that's metal, but metal has to be very very special for me to really dig in and get into it. You know, and it's and it's not uh, it's not dogging any metal bands or anything. I'm not saying like oh I'm better than them or whatever. It's just I just don't listen to a lot, so. When I listen to you know metal, it has to be very special. It has to really hit me in a certain way. Well, I have the same problem. I, I can relate, uh, but I kind of come at it from the opposite side of the spectrum, which is that I listen to so much metal every day. You know, I mean, I, I think yeah. people don't realize the volume of bands that there are in the world that you know that n not just the ones that have proper representation to send us a, a formal press release but the ones that you know just send us an email i mean we get probably 2 or 300 emails every day that are not solicited and um you know i think we i like to think we do a pretty good job of listening to just about all of those bands that that send stuff in um and i mean you would think that a lot of them would suck um and certainly some of them do suck and you know I, i've talked about this on the site before but the overwhelming majority of them are actually not bad uh they're yeah. just mediocre you know they're they're okay and i hear so much of that stuff that it's it's hard for me to separate it and and really get anything new you know kind of it just takes a lot to really impress me with a new band right no i i i can totally appreciate that i mean i can't imagine having to listen to that much music uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that would be that would be the the entire i mean this market is is saturated it's, it's completely saturated now um and uh I'm, I'm not surprised a lot of talent can come out so I wouldn't. I almost wouldn't expect any of it to be like terrible, you know, because there's there's a lot of people who can get music out now who wouldn't have had the tools to do so ten years ago. Definitely. But, um, but yeah, that's that's overwhelming, man. And, and and so so like for me, it's not that I'm getting getting lots of metal submissions, but being on tour with metal bands, it's kind of the same thing. It's like you're hearing so much metal every day, all the all the time. So it's like when you're not on tour when you're not on stage or listening to the band that you're on tour with it's kind of like you want something else you know oh, uh, totally and hey, don't get me wrong I'm not complaining and you know I don't think you are either it, no, you know, it's, no, a, it's a total first world problem I totally recognize that and I don't want to seem a, like a whiner you know like I love no. what I do and, and I, I wouldn't trade it in for anything else but you know like any job it is it is a job and it well it's not even a first world problem it's just an explanation as to why you don't listen to as much metal outside of it because like one of those things is work and the other one is like 
what you're doing when you're not working. It's pretty much as simple as that. Exactly. Um, and and I, I appreciate music uh, in, a, in a lot of styles. I wouldn't say necessarily every style, but there's a lot of different styles of music that I appreciate and take inspiration from. So uh, it is what it is. I can't really change what I like <laughs> as much as I might want to. It's like I either like it or I don't. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so you guys are doing Summer Slaughter here in a couple of weeks, and um, what is, are you looking forward to that? What is this, like your fourth Summer Slaughter or something? It's our second Summer Slaughter, but um, it's it's our fourth sort of summer tour, like we did two Thrash and Burns, so those kind of could be thrown into the same sort of category if you want, um, except this year we're touring with a bunch of death metal bands, so... Um, that was a joke, by the way. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's actually one of the, the, the uh, more prog-centric summer it's slaughters. It's entirely prog-centric. Yeah. It's funny because kids freak out, but they don't realize like what a strong franchise name the Summer Slaughter Tour is. So as a business owner, it would be so counterproductive to just relabel your tour as the prog-something tour, even if you wanted to put it together because the Summer Slaughter Tour carries so much weight that you can up guarantees and, and you can get people looking at it, at the poster and the bands um, just off off that alone. It is definitely a strong brand. There's there's no doubt about it. And um, this year's lineup is pretty strong, I think. I, I'm really excited for it. I love these kinds of tours. Um, so what what's next after that? Are there any more tours? Is it time for... Periphery three. This time it's Spencer's haircut or whatever. No, Periphery three. Last time was personal. Is what we're toying around with. No, we're gonna do a Juggernaut next, and we just uh, did a. We just actually we're in New Jersey just now. We're doing a Tesla track with uh, with David Bendith, and that was awesome. And we're gonna do a big epic concept album, uh, probably with him. Uh, That's awesome. He's. He's, if if I'm remembering correctly, hasn't he done a lot of bigger sort of pop punk like Mayday yeah, parade? He did Paramore, he did Breaking Benjamin, but he also did Candiria. And the reason that we're working with him is because him and I are like the biggest prog fusion nerds. Like he loves Alan Holdsworth even more than I do, and he's played with a lot of like my fusion heroes, like Lenny White and like Lenny White and him, Lenny White from Return to Forever. Uh, and him like do albums all the time so he's actually like he's taken a liking to us because this is kind of his chance to to, to stretch his uh, his prog wings if you will um, so I mean nothing said it nothing set in stone it's just a, a tester track that we did but personally I can't speak for the band but personally I had a very good experience there and um, that might be what we'll do for uh, for the album um, you know if everything lines up and works out um, as far as touring uh, super secret, but uh, I'll tell you as soon as uh, as I can, and you'll probably post it up on your page.
Scarlet is the song from Periphery on the Metal Sucks podcast. Misha definitely has some insight into a lot of different things, man. And uh, I, I think he's got to come up with some more creative names for albums, though. I'm kind of glad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> per- periphery 2. <laughs> I'm kind of gl- glad that we did the whole interview instead of breaking it up in half like we did with Gorguts. No, yeah, I, I really agree. Say. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I, th- I think that works better in, in some respects. You know, I think that's a good thing because you, you get to kind of hear the whole, what the, what the whole conversation is all about, you know. The thing was that Luke LeMay's voice was so <laughs> bizarre. that <laughs> Dude, I know. This so, that that was so weird. <laughs> it was so great to have that two weeks in a row. <laughs> well, for me, with, the, with, with Luke LeMay, what's, what's so interesting is that I just, Thought when I kept thinking, I'm like, he's got to be some brutal dude. He's from like the woods of Canada. He's going to sound brutal. It's going to be crazy. But no, you got something completely opposite. It's so weird, man. I don't know. It's, it was really strange. I work with my hands. But he was such, I mean, he was such a nice guy, though. I mean, so, so yeah. So was Misha. What the hell's up with that? What's wrong with all these metal guys? That's because they, uh, they the Vincent Axel, man, they, they got they get the big platform. So, so, now, oh. so now we got to. People are going to start kissing our ass like that now. Uh, nice. Actually, no. It hasn't. It, it hasn't happened that way so far. So <laughs> we do have a few good ones coming up, though. I've got. I've got a few in the can that we're going to have to. That we're going to have to get on. But most of the time, when you're talking to metal dudes, man, everybody's so cool and so awesome. And if you're trying to t- speak like a normal human being half the time with these guys, you get. That's what you get. You get some really good conversations out of it, and that's. And that's what a lot of people don't do. When they're t- when they're talking to people, I think we have talked about this on, on on our original show where we started about interviewing bands and how it's it can be pretty cumbersome sometimes, <clears throat> and a lot of bands can't stand it, you know, especially when they get on a on a upper uh, when they get to the higher tier because they've done so many of them and there's so many. Hey, um, wh- where'd you get your band name from? Yeah, okay. W- what's your favorite color? Uh, what's it like to be on tour you, yeah. you get you get lots of really dumb questions uh, when you're doing an interview so it's a, it's kind of kind of hard and when you're when you're able to have a relationship or some kind of conversation with somebody it just gets a whole hell of a lot better it really does man and talk about what's important to them you know because obviously you know misha has thought about the the label thing is that's something that's in front of mind yeah and i thought it was interesting that he's like you know look we haven't figured out yet what the perfect record deal of the present and future is going to look like we're still kind of figuring that out and it's rather humble to kind of you know say hey look i don't know i'm just doing the best i can well yeah and and to be honest nobody really has yet i mean even the record right. labels haven't figured it out yet so that's that's going to be important moving forward especially well, they'll, for they'll everybody be the la- they'll be the last ones to figure it out well yeah <clears throat> they're gonna have to be told well after we saw the oh god that's the one thing we didn't talk about this week and we're we're pretty much out of time now but uh, the UMG thing, the the Universal Music Group, the the vinyl crowdfunding thing, I think uh, we're gonna have to get into that next week. We're gonna hold that topic for next week because because okay. that is that has got some depth and makes me I really want to talk about that because it's they they have they're trying to usurp a movement and it's not gonna be fun. It's not gonna be fun at all. But we got to end the show. We got to be done with this Metal Sucks podcast. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes uh, because we're awesome. 
Okay, we're we're sexy. Comment. Make sure you five stars and uh, you comment and tell us what you think, even if we suck because we do. It's uh, it's fine with me. And you can listen to us uh, online, also at metalsucks.net. And every Sunday night, we week delay the show. You can listen to it on uh, No Control Radio ninety three point three HD three in Austin, as well as online at nocontrolradio.com. We're gonna end this with a brand new brand new song which if you haven't downloaded this it's up for free on the interwebs but i wanted to get it i wanted to play it because it's so badass dude it's the brand new carcass song and i know that you're you're wet for it right now right uh every carcass concert is a pilgrimage to get to that concert it's not just attending it's a pilgrimage and this new record is going to be amazing at least it's in my mind it's going to be one of the best records of the decade Look out! You've you set yourself up. I know, baby. and I never do that. I never yeah. do it. But after I heard this song in its entirety, I said, "I'm I'm willing to go there, man." Surgical Steel is the name of the new record that's going to be out. I don't care when. Someday soon, it'll be in my. As soon as it's out, it's done. Carcass. The song is Captive Bolt Pistol on the Metal Sucks podcast. Decent, decent, decent.